Hello, I'm Jim Mallard, host of The Mallard Report. On The Mallard Report, along with my guest, we will have a conversation where we will share thoughts and opinions. For more information, my bio, past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D dot Jim, are you going to be going to break a few times like we've done in other interviews or not? No, I just go straight for it. Okay. Keep the conversation I may have flow. to duck out a little bit before the hour, but but uh, but Mark can take you home. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. If not, I can take myself home. It's not that big a deal. Um, okay. Welcome, everybody, to the Mauer Report. As, uh, yes, the sponsor read. It's still in my hand. Good. Uh, good. Veritiesapparel.com. Veritiesapparel.com. Go over there. Everything is at least 10% off. Some items are up to 40% off. Uh, spring cleaning over there, so go check that out. That's veritiesapparel.com. Come over to mallard.com and go over and you get extra goodies for coming through and clicking my ad because I'm awesome like that. But enough about how awesome I am and how awesome the shirts are. Tonight I'm joined by Vic Manana. Now, you told me differently. <laughs> Tell, tell me how to say it right now. That I, total, I told okay. you. I told it's, you I was going to butcher it. It's so easy, Jim. Did I, you never take Spanish? And no, I, I took French. Okay. Well, the Spanish word for tomorrow is mañana. Mañana. <laughs> and so it's Vic mañana. It's Italian, but it's it's pronounced like the Spanish tomorrow. Mañana. Let's see if I can get the next guest right. Mark Cushman. Did I do good yeah, like uh, <laughs> the Cushman scooter. <laughs> That's pretty yeah. easy. So I, I promised Vic right before we went on air that I had something that he's never heard in any, any interview he's ever done, and, and he's he's been hanging in suspense for the last uh, what yes, minute I and a half or so. I'm, I'm biting all my fingernails off. We share. We, well, it's not the same year, but we share a birth date. Eight twenty-seven. Do we real? Wait, wait. And what's your eight twenty-seven? Yep. August twenty-seventh, baby. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Told you. Nice, that is. You're right. I have never heard that in an interview before. And I'll, I'll I'll probably do you one better. I'm also from Western Pennsylvania, but you're down that Pittsburgh way. I'm up north. Oh, okay. Very cool. So, very very cool, man. It's a pleasure to be on your show tonight. So very um, synergetic, I guess. I'm sorry, Mark. I don't have anything special for you. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I'm I'm just glowing in in all the happiness between you two. <laughs> See if we can make you feel better here in a second. So, who wants to start and talk to me about the uh, Star Trek continues. Well, I can tell you well, that the most be about Star Trek continues. Yeah. Um, about six years ago, I, uh, I, w- I decided that I wanted to start a web series, and I wanted to I wanted to make a fan driven web series that picks up where the original Star Trek was canceled, and effectively finishes the five year mission of the Enterprise, something that had never been done. And there are a lot of you know, different fan projects out there, but of all varying levels of quality. But I wanted to do one that was just superior and exceptional in as many ways as possible. So uh, we rebuilt the entire soundstage. I cast a bunch of dear friends who are also great actors. I brought in a bunch of friends who were Star Trek fans, but also uh, very talented artisans in lighting and camera and makeup and sound and props and wardrobe. And we have, to date, made 11 full-length episodes that finish the original Star Trek series. We've got over 10 million views, and, uh, and we've won over a dozen awards. Uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful tribute to the original Star Trek, and I fulfill my childhood dream of playing Captain Kirk. Not only am I the exec producer and uh, and directed a lot of the episodes and edited the episodes and helped build the sets and did all kinds of stuff, but I, I also get to play Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk. Um, so where, where do you enter this picture then, Mark? I'm a little... I don't want to say confused, <laughs> but I, I know there's a connection, but I, I haven't. I, I guess I missed that somewhere online. Well, I I worked for a couple of the Star Trek shows uh, as a writer, and uh, I knew Gene Roddenberry for many years, and I wrote a uh, three book series on the original Star Trek called These Are the Voyages, which won a Saturn Award a few years ago as Literary Achievement of the Year, and. Um, 
uh, Gene had actually gotten me started on that project way back when uh, and uh, gave me access to all the show files. And they, he kept everything. I mean, memo after memo after memo and, and uh, the production reports and the budgets. And my publisher licensed all the Nielsen ratings for every episode. So we put together this uh, voyage for the uh, fans to take where it takes them back in time and they're on the stage and they're in Roddenberry's office because we use the memos to create the dialogue. So it's not looking back. You're there witnessing the creation and the making of the original Star Trek series. And uh, Vic and I uh, have known each other for a few years now, and I wrote, uh, co-wrote an episode with Vic uh, on uh, Star Trek Continues called Divided We Stand and worked on a few of the other shows as a, as a story consultant. And, um, and Vic has now done an audio book of my first book. Now, this is a three-book set, one book for each season of the original Star Trek. And these are big books, uh, about yeah. 600 pages each. Because they're just filled with these memos, and um, and it's not just trivia. It, it is it's an emotional journey watching them make this show. Every episode, every episode was a fight. Every episode was a mission. And uh, so Vic now has done an audio book for the first one, six hundred page book. It turned into a twenty eight hour audio book. And uh, <laughs> Vic Vic is the primary reader. He reads my words. But uh, we brought on board, or I should say Vic did, he brought on board um, about 80 other voice actors, uh, and many of them are not really professional voice actors. Many of them are the original people from the series. Uh, for instance, D.C. Fontana, I think the best writer on Star Trek, and she was a story editor and the associate yeah. producer. She she reads her own memos, does her quotes for some of the people that we couldn't bring out uh, because we've lost them. We had Adam Nimoy doing his dad, and Chris Duhan, who plays Scotty on Star Trek Continues, doing his dad, the original Scotty. Uh, a lot of the original uh, people, Ralph Sineski, who was a director on the show, and Joe D'Agosta, who was the casting director, and Clint Howard, who was a guest star on an episode, and on and on and on. And then Vic brought in his cast from Star Trek Continues to do a lot of the voices. And uh, so you're, it's really an audio play. And over to you, Vic. Yeah, um, we uh, Mark and I worked on on some of the Star Trek Continues episodes, and uh, I am a, a voice actor by trade. Um, I've been voice acting for animated series and video games for about twenty years now. I've done over three hundred different animated series and video games, and and uh, so when Mark's publishing company started talking about maybe doing an audio book of Mark's books uh, it you know it just kind of made perfect sense to get to get me to, to read them because of my own personal love and connection for the subject matter as well as my background and experience in voice acting as well as having a studio uh, in my home and so I was getting ready to read the books and I thought you know it would be so much more fun to listen to if we brought other people in to be the voices of the other characters. So the audience, in effect, Jim, the, 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 the listener is going to feel like he's sitting in a room with Gene Roddenberry, listening to Gene Roddenberry tell, tell you about you know, different aspects of, 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 of an episode or of dealing with the network or of the challenges they faced uh, in the production, or the the audience the the audience will be listening, feel like they're listening to Dorothy Fontana describe how she wrote this iconic episode or the challenges involved. So by bringing all these other voices in, it makes it so much more entertaining to listen to, and the the listener feels like they're sitting there one on one with with these people um, recounting their memories and their experiences in making the original series of Star Trek. So I've got to ask, because that's like 28 hours is more content than I do in half a year for those people out there counting their fingers. <laughs> yeah. How, yeah. How, how long did that act? I mean, you must have sat there and talked to yourself probably twice that oh long. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Jim. Let me tell you. Let me just, let me just tell you, bro. <laughs> I, um, I had told myself a long time ago that I was not going to do audiobooks. I mean, I'm a, I'm a voice actor, 
but I don't, I, I, I didn't really, wasn't really into doing audiobooks. They are, they're very time intensive, as you can imagine. They, they take a great deal of time. And, uh, and it can get rather, you know, tedious after, after, you know, a couple hundred pages. <laughs> but, um, the, the funny thing is that had I just read the whole book by myself, I probably could have gotten it all done in, you know, in a, in a couple of months tops, you know, recording a, a couple of chapters a day or something. But the moment that I decided that I wanted to bring other people in to read the, all these different characters, I basically doubled my workload. And it wasn't going to mean any more money. It wasn't going to, it wasn't going to benefit me in any, in any more financial way. But I just felt that it would be so much more fun for the, the listener to enjoy if there were other people's voices and they would learn to recognize the voice of Bob Jossman or Jerry Finnerman or, you know, the different people that were, that were behind the scenes making Star Trek. And, uh, and so it ended up taking me the better part of a year, not only to record all my own stuff, but then to coordinate 80 different people recording their stuff, then get it all put in place, then get it all mixed and mastered and, you know, music bumps in between chapters. And it was, uh, it was a very ambitious undertaking for sure. So, Mark, I've got a question for you as I yin-yang back and forth between you two guys and try to piece this all together. Uh, you, you mentioned having all these memos, but today, I mean, everything's done via, like, email or text messages or what you know, any of this modern technology. We don't have to get into all of what modern technology is. Is it possible that, like, if somebody in 20 years wanted to come back and rejuvenate what you guys were doing, do you think it's going to be as easy or as even is it going to even be possible to do that? Oh, if there, if you keep all your emails, certainly, uh, you know, if you you uh, um, archive them, you can do that. But the the nice thing about this, and and no other show that I know of, went to this degree. And I've worked in entertainment for decades, and uh, I've written several books now on other TV shows. And uh, you know, they would all keep memos and keep files, the show files we call them. But nobody liked Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry and Robert Justman, his co-producer just kept everything, every note, every every draft of every story and script, every fight with the network, every uh, uh, um, uh, brainstorming session uh, they and the other staff members would have on each episode and budget problems and so forth. And what they would do is, is they worked such long days on this show, it was really probably the hardest show that was being made in the 1960s. I mean, they were really breaking new frontiers in every way that you can imagine. So it was a long, long day. And uh, Gene Roddenberry, Bob Justman, Dorothy Fontana, all of them, um, Gene Kuhn, they would get home uh, probably at, at 9 o'clock at night after being uh, on the studio at 6 a.m. And they would mix themselves a drink and sit back in a chair and light up a pipe and, and, uh, and start recording uh, in a dictaphone. And these memos would be anywhere from 5 to 10 to sometimes 15, 20 pages long on each draft of every script being made and other situations like how are we going to afford to be able to do this and and so on and so you really because they did that and because this was all preserved and i was given access to it i take pieces of all these things and weave them together so that uh... and vic can tell you having been there with all the voice actors and a lot of these original people that you do feel like you're in the room listening to them have a conversation about every episode of star trek what are we going to do? Uh, how are we going to make it? Why is it so important to us to tell this particular story? How can we get the network to let us do what we're trying to do? And, and so on. Uh, and so you're hearing the creation of every episode. You're hearing the fight to get it on the air and, and so on. And so it's, it's not just episode by episode that is dramatic, but the, the arc of the entire story as you see them go through the process of making the show, becoming exhausted, everybody, uh, through the course of it, and, and the relationship with the network breaking down and becoming problematic, which led to the cancelization of the series, because it was just doing too many taboo subjects 
uh, for NBC's taste in the 1960s. So, uh, so it was really a gift that they kept all these things. But certainly, I, I mean, I would love to see a book written like this on Breaking Bad, uh, you know, or shows like that, and and be able to see the memos intercutting and get a feel of what was going on in those production offices and on that soundstage. And and I'm sure they have them. Uh, but you know, me- uh, emails are usually a lot shorter. They're not. You're not going to get a 20-page email. Not for me, you're not. If you do, you know I've been hacked. Yeah. <laughs> Call me immediately if you ever get a 20-page email from me. Uh, <laughs> so, as Vic, uh, I guess as you were sitting there one day and decided, okay, this is what I I want to do. Take me from, okay, the moment of concrete moment of I want to do this to getting something together to do it. How? What's that process? Like? Um, for, well, from the moment of I want to do what? What are you specifically asking? Uh, start, starting to film film. To produce oh, the show. You mean my, my web series? Yeah. Okay, well, um, the first thing that I did was um, I, uh, myself and a friend of mine who was going to help with the finances of it, uh, we acquired, we rented a building in, uh, in South Georgia, and uh, we started building the sets. We, we had the full plan from the original soundstage, and uh, local guys down there and myself and some others went down and we started building the sets. And while the sets were simultaneously, while the sets were being built, uh, myself and a couple others were writing a story, our first episode story. And while that was being done, I was reaching out and lining up actors to play the roles and camera operators and lighting people and sound people and makeup people and wardrobe people and prop people um so there were a lot of things going at one time um i was had a lot of balls in the air if you know what i mean trying to juggle a lot of different things because you know a regular television production has an entire team and staff of people all you know delegated to do different things and i pretty much was kind of doing everything because it was my baby we all came together uh, in October, I believe, of uh, or January, about six years ago, and we shot our first episode, Pilgrim of Eternity. Um, I took the footage home and I edited it, and uh, and uh, music designed it, and uh, we we released it online. And we didn't know if anyone would enjoy it or not, but you know, we made the best Star Trek episode we could make. Um, and so we, we released it and people absolutely loved it. Um, they, they really, really, really embraced it. And so I thought, well, now that we've proven what we're capable of doing, and uh, now that we have an ep- a finished episode in the can and people can see what we are capable of, if, if they like it, we're going to launch a crowdfunding campaign, like a Kickstarter, or as we called it, Kirkstarter. And, uh, and we launched a campaign, and we raised enough money to make episodes two, three, and four. Then we launched another campaign to make episodes five, six, and seven. And then we launched one more final campaign to make eight, nine, ten, and eleven. So we, um, we, uh, we continued to grow uh, throughout the project. We, more and more people came on board. Um, I would cast guest roles. Uh, our wardrobe people would would create costumes based on the new episodes and the stories and what we were going to need. And um, we turned into, I got to tell you, Jim, we turned into a very finely tuned machine. We had uh, actors, we had guest stars from everything from Star Wars to Doctor Who to Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Buffy, Incredible Hulk, Buck Rogers, tons the original, of, of the original great, Star Trek. Yeah, yes, even the original, original Star, Star Trek. Trek. And uh, and and we had all these great guest stars, and so many of them would come down and do our, an episode. And when they left, they would tell us, "I've been on professional sound stages and multi-million-dollar productions my whole life, and none of them were ever run more efficiently." with a better positive spirit 
of just people really enjoying what they're doing and enjoying being around each other as Star Trek continues. So it was really, really a beautiful production. We had a wonderful time making it. We made lifelong friends uh, through making the production, and we also created and produced some really, really beautiful Star Trek episodes. In fact, Rod Roddenberry, who is Gene Roddenberry's son, uh, not only did he come down and did a little walk-on as a red shirt, did a little cameo, but he has been asked and on dozens of occasions has publicly stated that if his dad were alive today, he would consider Star Trek Continues canon. And Rod has said repeatedly he personally does consider it canon, it, as good as and in some cases even better than than some of the original Star Trek episodes. And, and I agree. I mean, this show picks up with uh, the what would be the fourth season of the original show. And as Vic said, it takes you right up to the doorstep of Star Trek, the motion picture, at the end of the original five-year mission. And uh, it's, it's, you know, but first of all, we we need to understand that Vic is working with professionals. These aren't just a bunch of uh, fans who, out in the middle of nowhere, who got together and decided to put on a show. I mean, these are these are professional actors, professional technicians. I mean, he's got people like Doug Drexler, who's won Academy Awards and Emmys for working on Star Trek movies and TV series, doing the Enterprise shots and so on. So I mean, it, it's it's top line talent, but but people who love the show and they weren't getting what they wanted. Vic, if I'm wrong, please correct me. But but I can speak for myself, and I think I can speak for all of you. They weren't getting what they wanted from the owners of the Star Trek franchise. So they put together the show that they knew that we, the fans, would love to watch, which completes that first five-year mission. Yeah, I don't know how big of a Star Trek fan you are, Jim, but uh, the original series was canceled in 1969, and they were right in the middle of a five-year mission. You know, Kirk used to say at the beginning of every show, these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, etc., etc. Well, they never finished their five-year mission. They got canceled abruptly. And the next time anyone saw Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, Dr. McCoy, was ten years later, 1979, in Star Trek The Motion Picture. But if you saw that movie, Jim, Captain Kirk was now an admiral. He wasn't even the captain of the Enterprise anymore. He was an admiral at Starfleet. Mr. Spock had gone back to Vulcan, to his home planet. Dr. McCoy had quit the service altogether and gone home. Everybody had gone their separate ways. And so my idea was, let's pick up the series as if they had never been canceled and fill the gap and, and craft a story that explains why everyone was where they were when the motion picture begins. And as Mark said, our final two-part finale episode returns the Enterprise to Earth. It completes the five-year mission. The ship goes into dry dock to begin the refit that it was completing at the beginning of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And we craft a story to explain why everyone was where they were when the motion picture begins. It's a beautiful filler to tie the original Star Trek series to the motion picture that was released 10 years later. And that's quite a expansive gap to, I mean, not only time-wise, but as you were mentioning, in the story, which I'm glad you did. So right. I, I've got the most trivial, I mean, the, my, my plenty of listeners are popping all kinds of good questions, and I've got the most trivial question in the history of man, but I'm going to ask it because it's my show. Um, why Georgia? Well, I will tell you, um, number one, the cost of living down there is insanely low. Um, we, we had an 18,000 square foot building where we built the, we, where we rebuilt the entire soundstage of the Enterprise sets and even built a planet set inside, um, very much like they did in the original series. And to have a building like that, we would never have been able to do this production in a major city like a, like a Los Angeles or a Chicago or New York or whatever. 
the costs would be completely prohibitive. But I was helping another fan production. <clears throat> excuse me. I was helping another Star Trek fan production, and they had a small facility in Georgia. They had a small building where they had built a replica of a portion of the bridge and a portion of, of a couple of the sets. It wasn't a very big building, but they had a couple of pieces. And I helped them make an episode, and uh, we forged a friendship, and we decided that that uh, we might we would pool our resources, so to speak. <clears throat> and uh, and I I uh, acquired I put up the money to acquire a larger building just down the street from the smaller building they were already in, and they were needing to vacate that small building anyway, and so they moved. Um, a port, their portion of the, of the sets that they had built over to uh, the new big facility, and then we began uh, laying out on the floor the plans to build everything else. The big bending corridor, the briefing room, sick bay, transporter room, captain's quarters, Jeffrey's tube, even engineering. Um, and that's what we did, and that's why we ended up down there. And I will tell you, I absolutely love this little town. It's called Kingsland, Georgia. It's a submarine base and it is right on 95 on the way to Disney. Um, it's a <laughs> wonderful little city with tons of hotels, restaurants, wonderful people living there. Cost of living is low. And every year, twice a year, me and all of my cast and crew would fly into Jacksonville, Florida and just pop 25 minutes down the highway to Kingsland, Georgia, and and spend eight or ten days shooting an episode of Star Trek Continues. Thank you for answering why I knew that town in Georgia. <laughs> of course. Of course. And that that saved me else. some Google right there. Any, <laughs> and, and I'll tell you something else. If any of your listeners out there have ever dreamed of what it would be like to walk through the original soundstage, the, uh, the original Enterprise Star Trek sets. Um, May 24 to 26, we are going to have an open house. There is no charge. Uh, there is no, no, no price to get in. We are opening the doors for people who love Star Trek to come and walk through the soundstage and take pictures of themselves standing on the transporter platform, sitting in the captain's chair, and uh, I tell you what, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, I'm going to be down there. Some of our other cast and crew members will be down there giving tours, uh, meeting fans, talking about the building of the set and the making of our series. Um, people can find out about it by going to the Neutral Zone Studios or Neutral Zone Studios um, and, uh, and, and finding out the details of, of the when and the where and all of that. So, Mark, I want to ask you, um, for all these courses of uh, memos and documents that you went through, was there, I mean, I, I hate to ask this because I know you guys just kind of built this big, big bridge to the movie, but was there anything left for continuing this project down the road? Um. You mean uh, as far as doing other books or revised books or, or more or more of the now? series? I guess is where I'm headed. Oh well, no, um, we um uh, we finished our oh, series. Oh, Star Trek continues. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We finished our series. My my goal my goal was always my goal was always to finish the five year mission. Now I will tell you, Jim, that we had originally wanted to make at least thirteen, maybe fifteen episodes. And partway through the production of our series, some things in the landscape and the CBS position towards fan films uh, changed uh, based on a couple of things that we are not going to talk about. Um, but uh, due to circumstances beyond our control, um, basically we realized that we needed to wrap it up sooner rather than later. So we, we were able to shoot and finish 11 episodes, but we did what we set out to do, which had never been done before, and that was finishing 
what is arguably the most iconic series in television history. Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you got it done because I could just imagine the tragedy it would have been to get close again and then have it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll, t- I'll, yeah. I'll tell you, Jim, uh, I mean, because I'm not as close to the show as, as Vic is, so I'll toot the horn for him. Uh, I did some writing for the show, and as I said, I was a script uh, consultant on a lot of the episodes and so on. But uh, but it's, Vic, it's Vic's baby, and, and him and his people did an amazing job. And um, uh, we did a screening in Los Angeles uh, because a, a couple of the episodes that they did are kind of continuizations of uh, episodes that were done for Star Trek where you wondered, I wonder what happened because of that. And so they answered that question. And there was one uh, an episode called Mirror Mirror. And uh, and Vic did an episode called Ferris of Them All, uh, which kind of picks up that story where it left off. And it was a story that needed to be picked up. And uh, we screened both the original episode, Mirror Mirror, from 1967, and Ferris of Them All from about four years ago, I guess, that is when that one was shot. And uh, and right during, after the, the Mirror Mirror, we uh, took a break. And uh, everybody could go out and stretch their legs and so on. And then they came back into the auditorium. Dim, dim the lights started. Uh, Ferris to the mall, and there was a gasp through the room because it's just it's the same sets, it's uh, the same lighting, the same. I mean, it, you just it, it's like you took an intermission and the story continues. And the actors switched out, but these actors are all so good and look the parts and sound the parts and that that within minutes you, you know you just accept it uh it's not like anybody changed whatsoever especially when you have people like chris duhan playing his dad's role and they look so much alike and sound so much alike and so on and and so it was really an interesting experience for me to be in that auditorium and watch an original episode of star trek and then the the part two uh, that was made, and they feel like they were made side by side at the same time uh, by the same people. Uh, and so it's a very interesting experience. So I highly recommend to anybody listening, if you haven't seen the show, uh, there's no charge. Just go to StarTrekContinues.com, and you can watch any of these fantastic episodes. Yeah, all free. Um, we didn't make it to make money. We made it for love of the original series and to say thank you to the original series for how much it inspired me when I was a little boy and and I'm not alone there are millions of others that were so inspired by that show and most you know thank you for all the kind words too Mark and Jim let me tell you that one of the most common things we hear is oh my gosh after 10 minutes I forgot I was watching a fan series I, I literally felt like I was watching episodes that had been locked in a vault for 50 years um, so I'm, I'm very, very proud of our team and what we accomplished. Um, I, I have a feeling that it will outlast all of us and, you know, decades from now people will watch the original Star Trek and then they'll watch Star Trek Continues and then they'll watch the first uh, Star Trek movie and go forward from there. So, Mark, I'm going to ask you this, and then, Vic, you can chime in, because I'm sure you're going to have an opinion on this question. And not to Star Trek, but as these series continue to go on, like Star Wars and just any number of series, is there going to come a point where the consumers get tired of just adding layer upon layer on it, or am I just misimagining things and want new something new once in a while? Well, we can hope that they do. Um, you know, I, I don't quite understand uh, Star Wars. Uh, I loved the first movie when it came out in 77, and I was about maybe 17 or 18, and I went to the theater, and they hadn't made a fun movie in a few years. You know, everything was getting so slow and serious and dark, and, and it was just a, a great roller coaster ride. Uh, and the second one was not quite as much, and the third one was not quite as much, and so on. And uh, you know, the thing that I have about Star Trek compared to Star Wars is Star Trek was about something. You know, there, there was uh, Gene Roddenberry always wanted to know what the theme of every story would be. And he wanted there to be a message behind every story. And he wanted all these episodes to look at ourselves, to look at humanity through the eyes of a Vulcan, to look at humanity through the eyes of people on other planets, and so on, and and deal with the issues that are happening today in our lives and on our world, 
but using science fiction to help help tell that type of a story, which is using science fiction very responsibly and to to full effect. And uh, and so I think it, it's gotten diluted with some of the um, the sequels, both of Star Trek and Star mm-hmm. Wars, and a lot of these other things. Uh, I don't see. Uh, the purpose behind a lot of these these programs they're certainly entertaining but it's kind of like you you walk out hungry for a real movie after you see it or hungry for a real tv show after you see it because it's it's it's, uh it's entertaining but there's not a lot of substance to it for me so that's my opinion i think it's gonna it's gonna taper off unless the people where the caretakers of these shows and these movie series start giving us something that we can really chew on, something that's got a little more significance and importance. I think Star Trek Continue did, and I, I totally agree with Rod Roddenberry that uh, I think his dad, Gene, would have called this canon. I don't know if he would have called some of the other Star Trek series canon. I don't think he would have liked <laughs> yeah. it personally, but I know he would have liked Star Trek Continues. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with Mark. Um, you know, Jim, there's a reason that we're still talking about Star Trek, and Star Trek is still topical 55 years after this television show was made. Star Trek is still popular not because of the special effects. It's not popular because of the, uh, you know, of the models or the sets or the costumes. It's popular because of the storytelling. The storytelling was topical, and it was relevant, it was thematic, it had a moral to a story, it had a point to make, and uh, and when I decided that we were going to make Star Trek Continues, I was fully committed that, that was the kind of, those were the kind of stories we were going to tell. Um, Star Trek is not about, you know, beaming down. Star Trek is not about firing phasers or running around in a costume and flipping open a communicator. Star Trek was about real human issues. And, uh, and so we, we worked really, really hard to tell those kind of stories. And I think that's one of the many ways that our series resonates and it is, is, is so uh, well-received. But I also think that, you know, Star Wars, look, I loved Star Wars. When I was a little kid... And Star Wars came out, the first three movies, I was completely enthralled. I loved it. But, you know, the new movies are just, they, they kind of leave me flat because they, there's just not much new to tell. There's just not, there's really nowhere else that they're, they're not going anywhere new. They, they seem to be regurgitating the same ideas as the original Star Wars movie, only instead of you know, instead of Darth Vader, it's Kylo Ren. Instead of Luke Skywalker, it's the girl, um, Rey. And, and instead of the Death Star, it's another Death Star. And instead of the Emperor, it's it's the, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's just literally, they're even flying around in the same ships. And, and it literally seems to be just more of the Empire is chasing the Rebellion again. And um, I, I feel like like really quality storytelling is is really missing in a lot of films and television. I agree. It's the last art, I think, storytelling. I mean, just in television, movies, people even anymore, just the last art of telling stories. But that's a whole other can of worms for another day. Um, yeah. Vic, you mentioned earlier that you might want to cut out a few minutes early. That's fine, but can you give me your 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 website, your Facebook, where people can find you? Sure, absolutely. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Vic Mignana. <coughs> Certainly, find me and our entire production staff and and cast and crew at StarTrekContinues dot com. Like us on Facebook uh, as well, um, and uh, my fan club website is www.rissembolrangers.com R-I-S-E-M-B-O-O-L rangers.com um, I do a lot of event appearances around the country I've got shows I just was at a show in Tupelo uh, this past weekend I was at a show in Dallas a few weeks ago 
I'm going to be uh, signing and doing a, an appearance at shows in Tennessee and Houston and uh, Savannah and Puerto Rico, uh, all coming up here very soon. So if any of your listeners happen to see me at a show near them, please come and say hello. So we've, I've got to have you back because we've talked about like 1% of what you've done in your life. So <laughs> Yeah, let's definitely do it. Thanks, let's definitely do it. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, Mark. Bye, Vic. So, so Mark, and I, then there were two. Now there's two. There were two, Jim. I, I want to spread out <laughs> on you now because, like, I, like I said, there's so much more that you've done that I. It's just remarkable. So that's why I kind of uh, made sure to get a little drill down a few times too. Because from okay, so like the, the the few things that I wrote down, the scribbled down that you wrote that I know about is like beyond belief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a, a TV series on Fox, Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction, and it had uh, Jonathan Frakes of Star Trek Continues was the host, and before him, I was with the show both when Frakes was there and and the guy before him. Who was the guy before him? He's married to Barbara Streisand. He used to be on Marcus Webby MD, and I can't think of his name <laughs> at the moment. It'll come, to, uh, it'll come to us, or one of my listeners will start shouting at us here in a minute. Yeah, so. one of your listeners. Who played the young doctor on Marcus Welby, if they can remember back that far? But he's currently married to Barbara Streisand. He's a good actor, and, and he, uh, he was the host on that show. But we told stories on there about um, you got to decide. The, the viewers would try to figure out if it was a true story or one we were making up uh, but they were all about uh, supernatural encounters and uh, uh, ghosts and, and strange uh, events and so forth and uh, some of them were very well documented uh, some of them were part of folklore some of them we just made up and then at the end of each show uh, Jonathan would uh, get up there and say okay and he'd go through the four episodes that had been shown during that hour and uh, four 15-minute episodes and let you know which ones were based on uh, what people think is true or ones that we'd kind of fudged a bit. That was a fun show to work on. I enjoyed that. So James Brolin is the answer to our trivia question. James Brolin, thank you. <laughs> how can we not think? How, how can we forget James Brolin's name? Well, uh, it happens to the best of us. Now, I really like that yeah. show. So did you, are you a... Um, believer in that type of thing or was that just straight right oh absolutely absolutely uh i have an open mind about everything i think most writers do and um and gene roddenberry was the same way you know he he uh, believed uh, as i do that there's life on other planets absolutely how could there not be when you look in up in the sky and see all those millions of stars and know that there's planets rotating around all of them even if one out of every million only has life you know that's still billions of, of planets out there that could be supporting life and some of those have to have uh creatures who've crawled out of the muck like mankind has and are you, out are you sure about that have we crawled out of the mud yet <laughs> i know it seems like we have oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah i think we're getting pulled back into the muck actually it seems but um no i i believed in that stuff and uh gene gene uh, did too not not at first he became a believer in the late 70s i have a, a a new two books set out covering roddenberry and star trek throughout the 1970s you'll say well wait a minute star trek was from the 60s well i covered that in that three books that we talk about and in the 1970s uh, nbc cancels it yet it becomes more and more popular each year and the conventions come which were the template for today's super cons, and uh, the boom in syndication and merchandising, and then Star Trek the Animated Series came on, and, and then Star Trek the Motion Picture by the end of the decade. And Gene Roddenberry was also doing several other pilot films during that era. And so the, this book covers all that. And one of the things he was doing that I found very interesting uh, researching was he was uh, doing a thing on the 10, or I'm sorry, the 9, the 9. And um, uh, it was a group out of New York State who uh, hired him to write a screenplay about aliens coming to Earth who had been here before and wanting to prepare man for their arrival. Uh, and he had, they had a channeler come in and the channeler uh, talked on behalf of the aliens to him, and Gene interviewed the channeler and asked all kinds of questions about who they were and their technology and 
when they had been here before, and and it, it's just it's eerie. Uh, you know, I went through all the transcripts and everything, and it was just fascinating to me. And and uh, he and I talked to his assistant Susan Sackett, who was uh, working with him at that time, and she said, you know, Gene always believed in life on other planets, but uh, but after doing that, he kind of walked away with enhanced beliefs on all kinds of unexplainable events because they uh they they did some out-of-body experience uh, experiments and experiences and so on and uh so he and, and susan kind of got startled about some things uh but he always had an open mind and i try to as well i believe most writers do uh you know we we don't close the door on anything because how are we to know so the, the other thing that maybe it's just my space, the podcast space, the internet radio space that seems to be going out of, out of out of this planet right now is true crime, and I noticed you wrote for Diagnosis Murder. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess is it just the general mor- morbid curiosity that people always have had? Why that space is oh, growing yeah. so fast? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, it's always been popular. I mean, look at it. Alfred Hitchcock back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. People always loved crime stories, and the more gruesome, the better. And, uh, you know, it's. Uh, I, I worked, uh, I, I did a script with uh, a terrific writer named Melody Fox. We did a script, uh, um, what was the name of the show? Law and Order. Law, yeah. And, and I remember we, we had to talk to the Los Angeles County coroner. And uh, because we were trying to decide if uh, this body, all those stories were based on true stories. All the law and order ones were based on headlines out of the newspaper. And there was one about uh, this, this body that was discovered in a storage locker in New York in the middle of summer. It was starting to stink to high heavens. <laughs> it had been in there a long, long time. So we had to call the coroner to find out if they could raise uh, fingerprints off of it and how long. It, you know, would it be before they could identify it and solve a murder based on this corpse and things of that nature? And uh, I remember it was so interesting for both of us because the coroner was just really got into it. <laughs> well, you know what you want to do if you want not to get caught. Then you got. I remember <laughs> looking at Melody and saying, you know. They didn't even ask to see our Writers Guild cards. As far as they know, we could just be serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> try, try to get some professional advice on how to get away with a crime. Uh, but I, I think it's it's human nature. Uh, I mean, you look at how popular uh, Game of Thrones is right now, and it's a very morbid series, and Dexter, and and uh, and so forth, which I thought was a very good show. Um, I thought, you know, how can we watch a show about a serial killer? Well, because he's killing other serial killers. He's the best guy in the show. And uh, so it's, you know, if you do it right, you can do it. You know, I always loved, there was a show on in the 70s called um, Columbo, Peter Falk, you may recall. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about Columbo was Columbo was actually the antagonist in that show. And it had never been done before. You know, on TV shows and movies, you always have the protagonist, the lead character, the person we root for. And and with Columbo, in every episode, the the protagonist was the killer, the murderer. The show, episode would always start with the murderer, and and he would try so hard. They they wanted to see if the audience could cheer for a murderer and, and hope that he could get away with it because he tried so hard to come up with the perfect murder. And then Columbo would come walking into the story twenty minutes into it. And his ruffled raincoat, and very kind of annoying personality, and and uh, cute but annoying, and so he was the antagonist. He was the guy who came in and uh, tried to uh, ruin the the murderer's perfect plans, and and so it was an interesting experiment with that show to see if the audience could get behind a killer, and it did. That show ran for for over a decade. So uh, you know, it's human nature to enjoy this kind of stuff and it goes back to the beginning of time to the earliest forms of storytelling i mean nothing's more morbid than than fairy tales and um you know uh the things we were told when we were kids hansel and gretel and all that stuff you know it's all you know throwing kids in the oven you know it's it's been like that since ever it's just part of human nature so what i mean i'm not going to ask you to date yourself but what what what's the biggest challenge now as opposed to then? Because TV has changed, um, I don't want to say 180 degrees since probably when you started, yeah. but it's probably close. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I started working in the uh, the the 80s, and um, 
and uh, it was my busiest in the 90s and into the new millennia. And I kind of uh, got out of it about 10 years ago. I still get pulled in to do things now and then, asked to do things, but uh, I kind of got into book, writing the books, which I really am enjoying at this point after doing hundreds and hundreds of scripts. You get bored of that after a while. But uh, But it was easier to tell stories back then and even before then, before my time, because you didn't have all the technology that gets in the way of telling a good story. I mean, think about this, Jim. You know, you want to tell a story about um, uh, a lady in distress, you know, out on the back highways and her car breaks down and she gets picked up by some bad characters and all this type of stuff. Well, you could tell those kind of stories or any kind of story uh, like that back, back in the days if you were writing westerns or if you were writing contemporary shows back in the 60s and 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, 80s, uh, all that. But now, you know, everybody's got cell phones. Everybody's got computers. I mean, nobody's really alone. You look at a movie like Deliverance, if you remember Deliverance with Burt Reynolds. Now, I was a teenager when that came out, but but they're out on that raft uh, in the backwaters, and they get they get taken captured by a bunch of the, the uh, back the mountain men who live up there and all these horrible things happen to them well that could you couldn't tell that kind of a story today because all those guys would have cell phones you know the minute something like this would happen they would call 911 and the helicopters would come flying in so it's it's kind of it's getting a little harder to tell good believable stories because of all the technology everything's easy uh, and it's not man against the element so much anymore uh, you know, it's it's uh, you got you got all this uh, support. So there's only three kinds of stories: man against man, man against nature, and man against himself. Uh, but you know, when you bring in all this technology, it's hard for you to have one person against anything. The cavalry can come over the hill at any moment if he just dials three numbers on his cell phone. So that that's kind of changed storytelling a lot. But also, uh, uh, the audience's sensitivities have changed. You know, we, we, we're now a generation that uh, uh, doesn't really focus on things too much. You know, with the cell phones and all the the bombardment of technology that we get, that uh, people's attention spans aren't as uh, as long as they used to be. And so they get uh, bored much easier and bounce around a lot more. Uh, so you have to cut fashion stories that are going to hold somebody's interest. You can't do something that's going to have too much dialogue or make the audience think too much. It's got to keep a lot of action and a lot of uh, gross jokes and everything else to keep people from flipping channels or speeding through it or or, or anything like that. So uh, entertainment uh, is changing constantly, and it, it's go- and it's going to accelerate. We're going to see a lot of big changes in the way entertainment is presented in the next few years. Keep in mind, we've only had the Internet for what? Not even 20 years, probably. Uh, and look at, look how much has changed in the last 20 years with uh, the coming of cell phones and the Internet. And that's going to just speed up. Yeah, and reliable Internet and fast Internet for the last, what, 5, 10 maybe. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the old dial-up that, you know, anyways, that's a whole other story for another day. Yeah, 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 I remember <laughs> that. Oh, my God, it took forever. Uh <laughs> Everybody's in the room all excited, like, hey, we have American online, and look at it, we're going to get onto the Internet and wait for an hour, and it seemed exciting. Uh, nobody would have any patience for that now. No, the world's changing. It's changing quickly. Uh, it's accelerating in ways that, that we never could even imagine. But, you know, everybody's still got their comfort places. You've got your favorite shows that you can go watch. Those things don't go away. You've got your favorite movies, your favorite music. So even if what Hollywood and the entertainment industry is dishing out right now isn't your flavor, if you, if you don't like it, well, then there's uh, you've got all the classic stuff. I mean, there's more stuff that you would have. It'd take 20 lifetimes to watch all the, the stuff that's out there. The good stuff. I'm not talking about the junk, just good stuff. <laughs> so there's plenty to watch, and there's plenty to listen to, and there's plenty to do. And shows like yours where people can get interesting information and interesting conversation and so forth instead of just sitting in front of the networks and watching these reality TV shows, which are not reality. I've worked on a lot of those shows, and they're not reality at all. It's all made up. Don't crush me like that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, oh, just, kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't, just don't well, tell me about say, the Easter Bunny, something. okay? It's, it's, not, it's not totally made up. Um, it's real people, real places, but we manipulate it. You know, uh, you know when they hire writer-directors like me, 
And so we don't have scripts to work off of, but we go out there with these real people and we'll kind of cheat. You know, like if they're betting on a storage locker, (laughs) they know what's inside already. We already opened it up and we all walked through there and saw it. (laughs) (laughs) So all this, this stuff where it's like, gee, I wonder what if I made a good buy and I wonder what's under this rug and what's in that box. Well, they did feel that. It was real because, you know, when we opened up the doors and went in there, they wanted to know. But uh, but by the time you turn the cameras on, you you already know where, hey, okay, so we're going to row and go over there and look disappointed, but then go over there and look in that thing because that's where the good stuff is. Uh, you know, because you, you need to know that. You need to know how to light it and and, uh, and everything else. You're not just going to roll roll cameras and and hope that uh, something interesting happens. So uh, it is real people, it is real situations, but it's all been kind of rehearsed and everything. So by the time the cameras start turned on, it's not really reality. It, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that particular brand of show because as, I mean, there's the original, and then as they kept spinning it off and spinning it off and spinning it off. And I think on like the fifth or sixth spinoff, you could tell that like it was you could just see the production in it. Yes, yeah. I could. I'm like, wow, this is really oh, bad because sure. they're trying to cookie cutter this guy into that. The main, you know, you look back at the main show, and that's they're trying to do that to him, but he's not that guy. And yeah, well, you think about it, you, you know, like in, in that type of a show where a storage wars, uh, and there's a whole bunch of them like that, and then they they get the what might be the treasure and they take it to the local uh antique dealer or pawn shop or whatever to find out if it's worth anything and and watch those shows and you'll notice when the person comes into the pawn shop um there's a shot of him coming in the door there's a shot of the guy behind the counter there's a shot of the two of them as he walks up to the counter and shows the guy thing there's a close-up of the thing that they're looking at and and so on and so on well look we don't go in there with 10 cameras <laughs> we go in there with maybe two. Uh, so you're obviously um, setting the shots up. Uh, so you walk through the whole thing. So when the guy jumps on his computer and he looks it up to see if it's a valuable, collectible thing, he's already done that. We've already walked in and showed him what the thing is. He's already gone and looked it up. And so what we're basically doing is we're restaging it for the camera. <laughs> and I, I like True TV a few years ago. They said it's not reality, it's actuality. And I like the honesty of that. Uh, it, with shows like Dog the Bounty Hunter and so forth, you know, they were doing his cases, but he was reenacting the cases. None of this was really happening at that moment. It was all reenactments. So, um, you know, so yes, it happened. Uh, so there is a, a, an element of reality to this stuff. But not, I mean, if you want to watch reality, watch Cops. That's probably the only reality show that's out there or something like that, where they're just out riding along and shooting what's going on, you know. But any, about anything else is is recreated for the camera. Are they still making cops? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. It's, uh, I was flipping channels the other night, and I came across it. It's on a new channel now, it's, uh, the Paramount Channel or something, and, and uh, uh, <sighs> Monday nights. I saw it. I thought, oh, I didn't even know they were making this anymore. You know, it's always on somewhere, but you just figure it's reruns. No, that show's been in production since, I think, 1989. It's been a long run for that show. So, Mark, we But it's, are, a, but it's a, a cheap show to do. We are rapid running, time. Out of, rapid running out of time. Where can people find you? Yeah, so I'm wasting all my time talking about cops. I should be talking about what I need to sell. <laughs> you can find me at markcushman.com. I have my website, but... Don't go there. Just go to these are the voyages com, and you'll find my Star Trek books, which are put out by a company called Jacobs Brown Press. And uh, they also have the new audio book that we were talking about earlier that Vic did. Uh, I've done books on Irwin Allen shows. I did books on um, I Spy because it was the first show to do interracial casting in American film around the world and and then the star trek books and i did one on the moody blues because nobody had ever done a biography on the moody blues i was shocked so i did one last year and um and so you can go find that stuff there Views if you're interested and in expressed what i'm on interested the in report are and, those uh, of the host and participants well mark I, I, hope have you to, do. I have to have you back because there's a lot more to talk Social about there as well but for tonight so much thank you more. so much visit mallard you're welcome thank you jim m-a-l-l-i-a-r-d.com Thanks for listening.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.